Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to episode number 31 of the Polygamer Podcast. My name is Ken Gagne, your host, and this week I am absolutely thrilled to be chatting with the multi-talented Holly Green, managing editor of GameRanks.com and author of the cookbook Fry Scores. Hi, Holly. Hi, Ken. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for giving me your time. As I mentioned, you have a variety of accomplishments and publications under your belt, and I'm hoping we can chat about as many of them as possible in the coming hour. Let's start with, of course, your journalistic background. You are the managing editor of Game Ranks. Yeah, I've been there for a couple of years now. And for those not in the publishing industry, what is the role of a managing editor as opposed to, say, an editor-in-chief? You know, it probably varies from publication to publication. I would say, you know, my role kind of as second in command at Game Rinks includes not only, you know, general editing, I edit everybody's work, daily spot checking of different articles and editing our features and that sort of thing. But uh, also managing our employees, for instance, if they have if they have questions about something, if they're there's a dispute that needs to be resolved, if they want to approach our publisher or our editor in chief, but don't necessarily feel confident doing so. Usually I'm kind of the go-between in that sense. And a lot of my roles also meant just constantly suggesting improvements that can be made for, you know, just for the overall day-to-day benefit of the site. And uh, that comes from, you know, I've worked for a lot of sites over the years. And when I came to Game Ranks, they kind of needed someone who had been at some more formal publications who could bring in some of the structure that they needed. And so that's largely what my roles entailed. And what were those more formal publications that you were coming from? Well, Destructoid primarily. And while it's not as formal as, you know, say, IGN or Polygon or that sort of thing, um, that was the first time I had probably experienced uh, real leadership within journalism, where, you know, an editor was taking me under their wing and I was... You know, there was just a large-scale organization of all these employees under these different titles. Um, The managerial and organizational structure was just something I absorbed um, that maybe I didn't have at other sites. And then once you have it, you kind of can't go back. So when I came to Game Ranks, it was like, okay, here's what we got to do. Change everything. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I would say Game Ranks is a more professional uh, organization as a result, just on the back end of things, how we run the day-to-day. And from the title, Game Ranks, which is spelled R-A-N-X dot com, and from the About page, this website was originally intended to take on like Metacritic and be sort of the Rotten Tomatoes for video games. And now, what would you say its focus is? Um, Mostly just news and guides. And, you know, our publisher, he's a really ambitious guy and is always trying to think of the next thing that's going (laughs) to make money. And uh, obviously, that's the role of a publisher. Uh, then trickling down, it's Ian's job to kind of get done the bottom line um, on the financial side of things. And then it's kind of my job to bring the journalistic balance to all of those things, find that compromise between what makes money and what uh, fits within our moral boundaries as well and just our personal vision. And just finding that balance over all three of our roles, is that that's another one of those day-to-day things that we're always doing. So by the time I actually got here, it already kind of strayed away from that. You know, when Ian had actually said, oh, we started out as a Metacritic competitor, um, some of the dead pages on our site suddenly made a lot more sense. (laughs) The name of the site made more sense. I don't know at what point they started to kind of get away from that, but we've had a lot more success uh, with our guides and interviews and reviews and just the daily side of things. So how would you say the website has changed in the time since you arrived, perhaps as a result of your arrival? The quality is massively improved. I I don't know. I don't want to take too much credit um, for the success of the site in general because, uh, as I said, all those three roles that between the three of us that are being played here are just so vital to the day-to-day management of the site and it being what it is. But, you know, I brought in a lot of um, SEO experience with me when I first came in. Um, just from a lot of the stuff I'd been doing on one of my original blogs. And so when I came in, I, I had some knowledge of how to improve things at least a little bit. You know, I, I'm still doing that on in a sense on a day-to-day basis of, you know, suggesting better headlines, suggesting better phrasing, you know, urging the backlinking and other things that kind of spread traffic out to the rest of the site. 
Yeah, I would say, you know, I think that's the the biggest thing. The headlines are better. The copy's better. The copy's so much better. Oh, my goodness. Um, and everything's a lot more uniform. And obviously, as an editor, that's going to be one of my biggest concerns. Um, so I think I've been successful there. But um, the biggest thing I've sought to improve has probably been um, the communication between the upper management and the writers. And not seeing writers as just this endlessly disposable resource where you throw right away and just go get some new one and you don't really care. Um, instead, you know, I've been getting the upper staff to invest in each new writer that's coming in, invest in their training, invest in them as a person and, you know, see them as more of a family member rather than just someone we're going to be swapping out. And that can be hard to maintain when you have a high turnover rate and Reason for high turnover rate can be all sorts of things when you're working with young writers who, you know, aren't necessarily always financially stable. And um, we usually have like a lot of students and people still living with their families. And, you know, sometimes that um, makes a bit of a gamble to go with with people who are less experienced. But it's really often very rewarding and very much worth the, the investment into people when you make the effort, you know. Yeah, and that's a great effort to make because I used to be an editor at Computer World Magazine. We had a small but stable pool of freelancers we rely on, and it took time to build up that pool rather than just work with somebody and then throw them away because when you establish that loyalty, you get to know their work, they become better writers, and they become more incentivized to do good work. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you're not um, if you're not spotting talent and cultivating it to its you know, to its fullest, fullest extent, you're, there's so much you're missing, you know, because it's, it's such a wonderful experience to work with a writer who shares your passion and vision for the site. And the last couple of hiring rounds that we've had, we've had some people come in, um, that I got excited to work with too. It's funny how motivation is this bug that everyone will catch, you know, it's just the spark that goes through, it just ripples through the rest of the staff. So, so yeah, very worth it. Do you work with freelancers as well or only staff writers? Um, you know, I used to work with freelancers a lot more than I am now. Our budget has shifted in such a way that I haven't been able to support freelance work as much as I have in the past, which which is a shame because I think that Game Rings used to have a lot more different and interesting things to say, things that don't get said right now because we're not working with the same people. We're not having that influx of the sporadic pieces from just this, we used to have a real collected handful of great freelancers who come to us when they had a little idea that they wanted to sell and throw at us. And so it made everything really interesting on the front page. Um, we just haven't been able to do it as much. Uh, when it comes down to it, you know, game guides are the things that really make the money. And it gives us a chance to be able to report the news every day, uh, to do the the interviews and the reviews that we love and occasionally get to say something important if we can find the time between news posts. So Yeah, it can be difficult in such a high-paced industry to take the time for a slower, more thoughtful, and more in-depth piece of journalism, but it's really worth it to not just let the day-to-day bury you. These big features, which is what I love about print magazines still, are, are really important. Yeah, that that part is hard. I mean, I'm taking on more of a workload lately to contribute to the daily posts instead of only doing the editing and managing the employees and that sort of thing. Um, and it's hard because it already takes me a long time to get through a really thoughtful piece. Like all the stuff I've written for Polygon, for instance, probably took me at least three months to write, maybe more. And it depends on how busy I get. And like I'm on my to-do list for the past two weeks, like every day I've written down, oh, I need to work on this piece that I'm writing. And I still have not gotten around to it. And it just part of me is grateful to be this busy other part of me is like you know if i can't do the meteor stuff then why am i here at all so that's that's just another thing that you have to balance you know doing the the passion stuff and balancing it with the day-to-day when you have a feature that you want to write it sounds like you occasionally write for other outlets like polygon how do you decide whether an article is a good fit for game ranks or for another outlet um how much the other outlet is paying me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a good motivator. Uh, you know what? We do not begrudge each other that over at Game Ranks. You know, because to be honest, if I write a feature and put it on Game Ranks, I am not going to be paid the rate that I am at Polygon or somewhere else. In fact, I often get, you know, up to up to ten times the amount. You know, depending on the length of the feature and um, 
it's my publisher has different tastes than the people that I want to write for too. I'll put that out there. Like if I, when I wrote my top 50 things, you never knew about fallout. Oh, he was so into that. But if I presented to him, any of my polygon articles, I wouldn't have gotten, you know, nearly, nearly the, the approval. Um, and to be honest, when you write something really important, you wanted to go out to the widest audience. You want the most people to read it. And that's not a bad thing at all. And, uh, you know, for different publications like Polygon, that's that's really there. That reach is there. And so for my more th- thoughtful things, yeah, that is where I want them to go. Places like that or Unwinnable. I write for Unwinnable sometimes, for instance. I don't think it's bad for a writer to spend as much time on a piece as, in such an equivalent to what they're getting paid. You know, so, <laughs> so if I'm going to get paid $30 for a feature, I'm going to do $30 worth of work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just being honest, you know, writers, you need to not feel bad or be self-conscious about knowing your value and not overextending yourself because there are going to be a lot of people who are so willing to take advantage of you in this industry and get as much free labor out of you as they can. So just don't let them <laughs> just don't let them do it. Is there ever a circumstance under which a writer should write for free, such as to build up a portfolio? It, it depends on who you're doing it for. You know, are you doing it for yourself? Or are you letting someone exploit you? And I think it would also depend on, um, you know, the publication that it is. It's the thing is, is are they monetized? Are they pulling in a profit? And are you giving them free money by giving them the free labor? I think there's a big difference between doing that versus doing stuff for a friend's blog. It's this labor of love that you guys do so that you can do industry things. And there's just it's two completely different contexts and just, you know, pay attention to the power structure. And if any paychecks are being given out at a particular publication, you know, you should probably have a chance to get in on that. So don't work for free. (laughs) No, that's a good point. I am the editor in chief of a print magazine about old Apple computers. And there's not a lot of money to be made in that market. Let me tell you. Yeah. The magazine is not ad driven at all. It's completely paid for by the subscribers fees. And we charge a little bit on top of that so that I can pay the writers 10 bucks per printed page. And that's 700 words. If somebody were to write 700 words for another magazine, they might get a buck a word. So whereas instead of seven hundred dollars, I'm paying them ten bucks, but that's proportionate to how much profit this magazine is generating. Right. And at least it's not for free; it's some token of appreciation. Right. Exactly. An effort has been made, and I think that's really important. On the Game Ranks website, you have a very clear outline of the policies and what standards you hold your writers to. That's something that I struggled with. Just recently on an episode of the Dialogue Wheel podcast, I was talking about how I back indie games on Kickstarter and then I shoot YouTube videos about them, which feels to me a little bit like a conflict of interest, but at least I'm only beholden to myself, not to an editorial board, and I'm always honest about it. The GameRank's policy says that disclosure of Kickstarter and Patreon support is encouraged but not required. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, which you and I had a little bit of a conversation about this before because I I felt like, you know, maybe I need to go back and make it a little bit more clear on our ethics policy page. Um, Part of the encouraged but not required goes back to another policy that I've already established at the site, which is asking our writers to refrain from donating money in any amount that exceeds the minimum necessary to obtain the crowdfunded game in question. So, you know, obviously you do a Kickstarter for a game. There's going to be multiple tiers for the rewards on the side. We ask that you, you stick with the one that gets you the game and not go any further. So basically a pre-order. Uh, more or less, yeah. Um, we also have a $50 limit on what can be accepted as swag and what has to be either returned or reviewed. And so it, that kind of plays a little bit into it too. We are paying attention to monetary amounts because once it gets excessive or you've made an extra effort, um, you know, when I say... The disclosure is encouraged but not required. That also goes back to disclosure in the article itself. So I feel like if you've put down enough money to obtain a copy of the game, I don't think that necessarily requires disclosure at the bottom of an article. However, it does require disclosure to me, the managing editor. I require that all the writers make that clear. And um, Ian is held to that standard, even though he's my editor-in-chief. He's technically my boss, but he's held to that standard. Um, I believe... At least once he's gone far above the reward tier that was needed to obtain a game, and so I required him to disclose publicly that he had dis- that he had donated to that Kickstarter, and he was more than willing to do that on social media. And so, 
that was, you know, that, that's still a hard one. And I, you know, if someone were to come to me and maybe criticize that a little bit, I can see myself responding to that, but you know, that's what we feel, uh, is appropriate. Now, did Ian have to disclose that because he was also planning on reviewing this game or could he have just removed himself from that situation by not reporting on that particular title? Um, I think removing yourself from the possibility of reporting on a title that you've obviously, you know, if you, I won't say invest because Kickstarter is not an investment, but you give that amount of money, you know, at that point, I think removing yourself from the coverage of that game is uh, an adequate solution. We haven't come up against that problem yet. You know, Ian did get a reminder like, hey, you know, that's far and above what you needed to do. I think he'd like spent a hundred dollars was like, nah, you know. But he hasn't talked about that game on the site, and so that's, you know, the boundary was maintained there. What I'm finding out about having ethical standards and paying attention to it, it's just, it's, there's stuff that comes up on an almost daily basis, you know, and it's, and judging everything comes down to a case-by-case basis, and sometimes it feels like some of the rules aren't a one-size-fits-all, but, but we are genuinely trying to do the right thing in every single situation. Of course, but as you said, it requires constant appraisal and reflection. Constant. Constant. I mean, every single every single situation. So, What about Steam codes? Like if a developer says, we'd like you to review our game, here's a code to download it. Do you say, no, thank you, we'll go buy it? Oh, no, 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 no. no. We, <clears throat> we have a disclosure at the end of our reviews for that that make it really clear how the copy of the game was obtained. Uh, we do allow reviews of games that people have purchased, but again, that's part of that's part of the disclosure process at the at the end of the article. I think it would be really hard for anyone who writes for us, probably any writer, period, um, anyone reviewing games regularly and trying to make a living off of it, if they were having to purchase each and every one of them. It, not only would that be extremely difficult, but a site would gain absolutely no revenue from it because only you know, release day reviews are the ones that make, or pre-release reviews are the ones that make any money. So at that point, it almost becomes uh, not worth doing unless you're doing it for the sake of criticism itself, which is a good reason to do things. And we still do that all the time. I just have less of an issue if we're, you know, if we accept a game for free, that means it's going to be reviewed. And it means you're going to go hard on it if you need to go hard. And, you know, and that's that. In fact, doesn't the FTC require disclosure of... They do require disclosure. Yep. So there you go. There you go. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not only the managing editor for Game Ranks, but you are an accomplished writer and photographer and chef because you recently published in the past year Fry Scores, a cookbook of foods and recipes derived from video games. Well, chef feels a little lofty. (laughs) (laughs) If you're publishing a cookbook and you're not a chef, well, you got to re-examine your titles. Well, I will I will put it out there that getting to the title of chef in the restaurant hierarchy is a, a time investment and a mastery of cooking that I don't know if that is necessary for writing a cookbook. But certainly I uh, I envy it. I do have a solid background in um food service in the restaurant industry. So that definitely played into the development of the book. So luckily there's there's that background there. Um but uh you know, having back problems, I, I probably could never become an actual chef. It's It kills me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this book was originally published in December 2014 for iBooks. The Kindle version came out in September of 2015. And the book focuses not on recipes that are simply inspired by video games, but recipes that are actually in video games. How did you settle on that angle? So the book was inspired by an article I'd written on video games that make me really super hungry. It was a listicle, you know, just meant for comedic value. And that article in turn was mostly inspired by um, this Sims 3 marathon I was having. Like every time I play the game, I would just get so hungry. The key lime pie in particular would always do it. In the comment section of the article, some folks spoke up and they were kind of talking about some of the dishes from video games they had made before. And one person brought up um, their recreation of Cook Cook's Fiend Stew from Fallout New Vegas. And so at that point, you know, we kind of threw ideas back and forth and, um, you know, the idea to put them together into a community cookbook kind of came up. And so initially that's what it was conceptualized as, but, you know, some months later I ended up started working at Game Ranks instead. And so, um, 
you know, since I didn't really feel I was part of that community anymore and none of the recipes had written, had been written or compiled or even started, I just, uh, you know, decided to go it alone. I, I knew immediately that I didn't want to do foods that were inspired by video games like Mario Mushroom Cupcakes or something like that. I knew I wanted foods that were actually in video games and I knew that was going to require a lot of creativity because I didn't, I didn't want to do something where it was like the recipe was already laid out. You know, and I was just ripping off of something. The vast majority of the dishes that are in the book are ones where I kind of had some vague notion of what the ingredients were. And then I just had to kind of go from there. Uh, In some cases, you know, I really only had a little bit to go on. And so it required a lot of creativity, rewarding creativity. But, I mean, there was so much that went into it. Um, You know, 20 plus years of cooking history, the meals I've made for my family over and over and over again. Um, were a big part of uh, providing the structural backbone for these recipes. And then over the years, um, my interest in fusion cuisine and um, just all the home cooking I do, the experimental home cooking and the, the I, you know, I, I do a lot of exploratory cuisine and it's always with the aim of learning and learning and learning. And so kind of the, all these things came together, you know, in every single recipe that I, that I created. Um, yeah, I'm really proud of, of how some of them turned out. Uh, what are you most proud of? Which recipes? Let's see. My French toast from uh, The Sims 3 I really loved because in The Sims 3, uh, you'll notice when you go to make French toast, you actually put it in the oven instead of on top of the stove. And so my recipe is designed both to be fried on top of the stove or baked in the oven. And it's uh, it's something that you uh, soak in the fridge overnight and it's very rich. And uh, I've always really loved that one. My roast chicken is probably one of the most amazing things I've had. But the probably the most creative thing I had to come up with is um, the Yato's soup. The soup that Yato has you make on top of the mountain, Snow Peak Ruins, in Twilight Princess. Let's see. That had salmon, goat cheese, and pumpkin. And that, that I was really intimidated by that one. But that was just one area where all these, like I said, all these elements kind of came together and what ended up coming out was really amazing. I had um, settled on a smoky theme to bring all three flavors together, got a bourbon infused uh, smoked goat cheese, uh, broiled the salmon, get a really nice caramelized edge edge on it. And, um, you know, all those things came together in just this really amazing way, had a pumpkin cream kind of base that uh, blended the cheese in really well and I actually really like that soup and it sounds so bizarre and I am not a goat cheese fan but it ended up just perfect. Now I would not expect something from The Legend of Zelda where who knows what ingredients they have in the land of Hyrule. What other fantasy recipes do you have? Anything from Skyrim? Um I do have Skyrim recipes. See, the great thing about that that Twilight Princess one was that, you know, and and I've done this with a couple of the different recipes is that, you know, looking at the in-game renders can kind of give you an idea of what direction to go. So I kind of under, already knew, oh, I can use regular pumpkin, and I knew I could use salmon because the fish didn't go by that name in the game, but it was clearly supposed to be salmon. Doing the Skyrim recipes was even easier in that capacity. All of those, almost everything has some kind of real-life counterpart. And, you know, if you want to direct people to do some improvisations that are still canon to the series... There's so much food to choose from in Skyrim, just insane amounts. So I did the apple cabbage stew, and that's another one that just turned out so fantastic. I was so proud of that one because the uh, vegetable base that you use for the um, for the stock included uh, some really unique vegetables that uh, blended well with the apple cider kind of base that I was going for. Um, and for that one, I kind of suggest, oh, you know, we want to throw, if you've got a rabbit, you should throw some rabbit, you know, in there. That's a, one of those things you eat while you're out in Skyrim. And also it'd be really, really good. Yeah, that was another one that was a little bit odd, but challenging and then turned out really well. Another one I'm really proud of. So your recipe actually calls for rabbit? Um, It's one of my suggestions. In each recipe, uh, at the end, when I kind of give the final picture, just to kind of show off what it looks like, the end product. I also give like a a couple of final little tips that you can use to make your meal just that much better. One of my suggestions for that one is, hey, if you want to improvise and add a little something to it, you know, rabbit would be good. And someone actually tried it. And I was really impressed because they were like, yeah, I live on the border of Washington and Oregon. I'm going to have to go into Portland to get some rabbit. I'm going to do it. (laughs) I was like, wow, I'm impressed. (laughs) That is dedication. It is. I was really impressed. (laughs) Now, at the opposite end of the spectrum, do you have anything for a vegetarian like me? Actually, 18 of my recipes are vegetarian-friendly. Wow, 18 out of how many? Uh, 25. 
Wow, that's the majority. Are you vegetarian? Uh, no, I'm not. But I, I did take some of it into consideration when I did this book. For instance, apple cabbage stew, completely vegetarian. Um, the Minecraft mushroom stew, also completely vegetarian. Obviously, the cocktails are. Um, you know, the desserts are all vegetarian. Um, my fruit parfait, obviously vegetarian. So some of them, you know, duh. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Uh, French toast, for instance. But um, a couple of them you can just kind of adapt slightly and it'll still work for instance the crab rangoon i'm pretty sure you could find an imitation crab that's meat free that would work just as well you could probably you know most people use imitation crab anyways and pollock is disgusting so <laughs> <laughs> so you know um i leave some of that up to vegetarians to figure out because you're obviously you're going to know the substitutions better than a meat eater like me but 18 of them are either already vegetarian or vegetarian friendly. Wow. Well, thank you for thinking of us. I appreciate it. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm in Seattle and, you know, when you work in the food service industry in Seattle, you, I mean, I'm just so blessed that nobody has been like, but what about the vegans? I'm, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you wrote in an interview with GamingEnthusiast.net that you actually had more to learn about food photography than you did about self-publishing. Can you tell us a little bit about your photography setup? Um, yes, I can. Now, when I that quote was directly in reference to how easy self-publishing has been in the eBooks era, and so, um, you know, there was so much more to go into in terms of um, preparation than than that aspect, as even as daunting as that felt at times. Um, you know, I think a lot of people going into a into writing a cookbook wouldn't also assume that they needed to take on the photography <laughs> and all those things. But that, for me, was going to be part of the fun. I mean, you know, it was one of those things where when it comes to a lot of artistic things and hands-on things, I have a really good way about me of just being able to figure things out. And a lot of that time goes on, that goes on gut instinct. And so I started shooting almost every single day and critiquing my own work almost every single day. And it got better almost every single day. Now... I've never been able to afford a professional setup at all, you know, because I don't have the space is, has been pretty much a thing. Now that I, I just bought a condo, so it's a little different now, but I didn't have that during the development of the cookbook. So I had very little space to work with. But what space I did have, I, you know, I could go outside and use the natural lighting and then use various solo elements and bring them together to give the appearance of being in a different environment or a different room. And so I was using tables and beams of wood and um window paneling and that sort of thing um to kind of fake being in you know an outdoor picnic environment or you know whatever um and you know you got to work with what you have and that's one thing i'm really proud of um that uh things turned out so well when so much of it was such an improvisation but if you have really good lighting and you remove all your background elements and distractions and you know, uh, that makes for good photography. So what's kind, what kind of a camera are you using or what kind of lighting are you using? Um, so I'm using the Canon, Canon Rebel XSI. And, you know, I, I use natural midday lighting. Seattle is bright and overcast, and that is one of the best conditions to shoot in. So I, I also use, um, you're going to laugh, I use this enormous um, dolly, just a slab of wood with wheels. And um, I use that as the basis for a lot of my shoots because then what I can do is uh, move it anywhere I need to to get the lighting that I need. Um, that just makes everything so much easier when you've literally got a moving shoot on a plank of wood. And I was like, oh, the lighting really sucks here. You know, move it six inches left or right or whatever. Uh, oh, it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> oh, easy fix. Yeah, it is. It is. It worked really well. <laughs> do you also use a tripod? I do sometimes, but I really, really prefer not to use one. I'm just... I know it's possible to have an incredibly steady hand, but I also know that I won't get there unless I insist on shooting from the hip at all times. So I never used a tripod even once during the publication of a fry scores. Wow, very impressive. Yeah. You know, um, I need to have, be able to have the speed to just take as many photos as I need and just move around constantly. I need the opportunity to not have to worry about breaking down and setting up over and over and over again. I just like to you know, plug in my headphones and kind of black out the rest of the world and get into my zone 
And the best way to do that is to cut down on all those little things that are going to distract me or take take up more time. So that's that's a little bit of also why I shoot from the hip. Somewhere on some backup drive, do you have all the hundreds of photos you took and didn't use? Uh, I have all of them, yeah. The only ones I don't have, um, one of my uh, SD cards got corrupted, and those those are the only ones that I don't have. Yeah, I've saved every single photo. And and that came in handy because when I had to reformat the book uh, for Kindle, I had to go in and recreate every single page by hand. And it gave me an opportunity to, you know, because I'm still learning things all the time, even since the publication, you know, originally on iBooks, I've been learning more and more. So it was kind of like, oh, I get to do a bit of a re-edit, you know, improve these pictures a little bit, choose some new ones, play with the formatting. So I was, I knew I'd be grateful to have hung on to all of those. And I was right. <laughs> Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about formats. The Fry Scores originally came out as an iBook, and then about nine months later came out for the Kindle, and that edition actually required its own Kickstarter. So what kind of challenges or expenses were associated with porting it from one to the other? Apparently, you can't just go into iBooks and click Export to Kindle. Which actually, you you can go into iBooks and say Export to EPUB or to PDF, but with a, with a the formatting and with a book like fry scores that's so picture heavy it just was not going to work out and so at that point i knew i was going to have to have a professional come in and tell me how to approach it next because um i just had no idea what i was doing um you know the the biggest challenge of fry scores with its formatting was that i originally designed everything in ibooks and so you know not only it was almost like having to start from the ground up again you know approaching kindle because it was like you know, you build the entire book in this program and it's like, oh dear, you know, I can't export these pages exactly as they are in any way. Um, I'm gonna have to do this all again in Photoshop. And so, you know, I think if I had been aware that that was going to happen, I, I might've actually done everything the other way around as wonderful as iBooks is to use those, you know, you, you can't just spit out those pages and get them on the other side. So, you know, this it, that part ended up being very time-consuming and and in, contributed to the expense of everything um, because everything was also so picture-heavy. It requires what's called a fixed format, which is is um, you know every. So I talked to a few different formatters, and every single one of them was like, "Oh yeah, this is going to take a long time. It's going to be expensive." I the quote that I initially got was so high, um, but so that's where the the Kindle edition, the Kickstarter, came in. Um, I ended up having a little bit left over. Um, a lot of people ended up using the Kickstarter as an opportunity to just get their copy of price scores on PDF, which is great. You know, they got something for their money. Um, you know, I, I still have those funds kind of left over and set aside cause I didn't reach the stretch goal for the price score sequel, but I kind of had a feeling I was going to end up doing it anyways. So, you know, it's just kind of sitting there waiting to be my budget for the next, for the next one. Cause I, you know, I probably spent a couple of thousand on price scores and uh, it's just going to happen again. You know. <laughs> so which would you say was easier to work with? Was it the iBook or the Kindle? So iBooks, iBooks is great to pull something together visually. I mean, it's really a more intuitive Photoshop. You know, you just have to be aware that if you want any other format, you're going to have to start it from the ground up. Just don't even, you know, don't even get it in your head that you could possibly convert it. And then when it came to putting it together, the Kindle thing, I mean... At that point, being so out of my element, I just handed it all over to the formatter and was like, <laughs> go for it. Um, I was really lucky to already have so much Photoshop experience because it was like, all right, I think I can blunder my way around in this program to figure out how to recreate these visual elements. I got lucky in that capacity. It actually wasn't that bad. Um, and taking that on myself reduced some of the costs. But in the end, um, you know, the stuff that they had to go through with um, – not only getting the photos in there, but then creating some of the enlarged text and the structure. And that was, those were the additional elements that, you know, coming in and that's what was costing me as well. So with everything that you've learned from publishing two editions of Fry Scores, how would you do it next time? Um, a, see, so I'm going to do the Fry Scores sequel. A great thing um, about Fry Scores at first, obviously I didn't know what I was doing and the lack of organization meant I ended up wasting a lot of time because I just didn't know where I was going yet. Um, I have a more of a process down now. So going in, I can see how it'll be a lot more efficient in that I have an order of operations to follow now, whereas I didn't before. 
So that internal order operations, you know, falling back on that is something I'm also using for the Drunken Moogle official cocktail book that I'm writing with the with the author of the site. It's just um there's a procedure there that just makes things so much easier now. And that's um just taking that in with me to the next book, I think. Uh just not just speed things along, but just help with my confidence as well. Just I don't know what I'm doing this time around. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have a lot of awesome projects that you're working on, and I want to chat about those other books. But first, I want to ask about Fry Scores. So we have the Kindle, we have the iBook, but no hard copy edition. And cookbooks often lend themselves well to a hard copy where you can lay it flat in a kitchen and consult with it and maybe annotate it in the margin with your own changes to the recipe. Are we going to see a Dead Tree edition of Fry Scores? You know, initially when I went to pub, when I had the idea for the book, um, there was a publisher who was who expressed a little bit of interest, and you know, they never followed through on that. And at that point, I kind of started snooping around online to see what I could do in the ebooks format, so I could do it myself. I thought if I could get it out there, that you know, a publisher would show up and that someone would take interest. Um, so the Belgian games merchandiser Level Up have, were the ones to kind of step up about that, and so. You know, we're working on the European print edition, and I have someone in mind for the American edition, and that's something that I'm going to be doing hand-in-hand with the Drunken Moogle Cocktail book. Um, I can't disclose who we might be working with, but that is something um, that's something that I've always wanted to do. It was just like, if I do the ebooks first, then I can get the interest. It's like, if you build it, they will come kind of a thing. That's definitely a byproduct of the internet era where you do the labor of love and you put it out there first and you and you hope that people will follow through accordingly <laughs> and and how's the reception to the ebook editions been so far obviously the ibook did well enough that you considered porting it to kindle and the kindle at the time that you and i are speaking only came out about two three weeks ago have these been well received they have been well received um obviously there's not a lot not as much fanfare you know for the kindle edition because i there was so much for it you know when i released on iBooks, but that's okay. You know, the big thing about the Kindle edition is everyone's, oh, Kindle's where the big money's going to be. You know, I haven't actually even checked my sales figures because I'm honestly a little scared, but uh, everyone in the community has been really enthusiastic about the project. You know, Swery65 actually um, was really thrilled when I told him that the Sinner Sandwich from Deadly Premonition was in the book. And uh, he gave me the biggest hug, and we took a selfie together and went and had some drinks at the bar, and it was just awesome. <laughs> he was really enthused. So it's really great to see that uh, some of the people kind of sort of in a way attached are are really enthusiastic about it. Almost universally, the response is, oh, that's so cool. I mean, I don't cook, but hey, that's cool. <laughs> I teach an undergraduate and graduate course at the local college in online publishing, and that includes a brief overview of ebooks. Every guest speaker I've had come in who has some familiarity with the industry says that 70 to 90% of their sales come from the Kindle edition to the point that if they have limited resources, that's the only version they do. I can certainly see why you went with iBooks first due to the visual nature of this book, and I've played with iBooks author. It's gorgeous. But I would hope that now that you're on Kindle, you're going to see some significant sales. That's my hope, too. I really, yeah, I really don't know what to expect I, I don't want to, it's one of those things like you, you hope people are going to respond and of course you want to hit, but, um, I'm just too internally cautious of a person. I mean, the, the fact that I found iBooks is the only reason why Fry Scores exist, exists. I mean, if I'd been aware of what was going to happen with each option and, you know, if I'd been given all the information, maybe I would have gone down a different path. But if I haven't found iBooks and saw how easy it was to use, I probably would have never been like, yeah, I can do this. So I'm always going to be grateful that I found it, even if it was a gigantic pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> the, the thing is, what's crazy is, is I probably will design the sequel in iBooks again just because they made it so easy to play around with things and then figure out the look I was going for. And at the end of the day, I'm going to be able to recreate all of those elements in Photoshop again. I've done it once. I can do it again. So, you know, I might end up just doing that all over again. Just funny. So even though the Kickstarter raised $3,200, coming 1800 short of the $5,000 stretch goal for a sequel, it sounds like you will be doing a sequel. Yeah, I, you know, it would have been nice to have it fully funded ahead of time. That would have just given me so much freedom to just tackle it and get it all done at once instead of just being able to do maybe 
I'm looking at maybe a shooting schedule about one recipe per week max. I'd like for it to go faster than that, but that, that is what it is. Um, it just, I just love cooking too much, and the projects that I came up with for the sequel are just too good. So it's like, nah, you got to do this, though. <laughs> and then, to be honest, I, I'm happier when I'm writing recipes and taking photos, and I, I love food styling. I love food photography. And this has been a great new backup career for me. Because I, I actually ended up getting good at it. And, you know, um, if not Fry Score sequel, then I'd probably just move on to another cookbook or cocktail book anyways. I wanted to do a book about gin cocktails. And, um, the, I mean, this is the path for me. I just, this is the path for me. So Fry Scores was probably, you know, the sequel probably always was going to happen whether or not we met that goal. Um, as much as I would have liked to have the comfort of being able to, just oh here's a chunk of money to just be able to buy everything I need right away. It's it's okay. I don't know. So have you given your notice at Game Ranks yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's that's the terrible thing too. It's like <laughs> I've I've had these internal discussions with myself, like oh you know you're getting too busy for Game Ranks, and then the opportunity steps up to take on more responsibility and try to facilitate even more growth at the site, and then it's like. Oh, but but no, it's just getting good. It's just getting good. You got to stick it out. So it's like I'm finding out I don't have nearly enough time for all of these projects. That was something I was even dealing with today. Where it's just like, um, you know, I was sometimes I get so excited about all these wonderful ideas I have, and I throw myself at all of them all at once. And um, I'm not the type of person to give up just because everything's driving me crazy. I see everything through to the end. So you know, I end up. Um, you know, just being very super busy, just all, all the time. It's a challenge when you have so many ideas that make you really enthusiastic, things you're really passionate about, and you have to choose. And sometimes you choose too many because how can you say no to these? I know. And I'm the worst about that. I'm In my mind, it's like, I work from home. I have all the time in the world to do everything. And I'm hitting this wall like, maybe you don't. And I'm like, shut up, brain. I will not accept that. <laughs> <laughs> work harder. Ah. Lists are like 20... 20 entries long every day, but I know. It's a Sisyphean task, and we do it anyway. Yep. If you shoot for the stars, you'll at least reach the moon, right? So that's what I—that's how I approach it. Like, throw 20 things at the wall, and at least 10 of them will stick. Yeah, no. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so there's one other topic I want to talk to you about in the remaining time of our one-hour interview, and that is you mentioned that cooking, which you do a lot of, obviously, for fry scores and hosting parties, and you say that that works well for, with your compulsive behavior, which is a symptom of OCD. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about that? When were you diagnosed with OCD? So the particular excerpt that you're referring to is obviously from my Polygon article where I was talking about what it's like to be a gamer with OCD. And I was kind of talking about how, you know, my love for decorating and entertaining and hosting and cooking and um, all, how all these things kind of came together for fry scores, you know, um, just this perfect balance of all of my strengths and all of my passions balancing out to create this, you know, this great thing leading up to fry scores. Probably someone could have told me that I'm OCD considering how I just latch onto things and, and never let go. But, um, it's only been in the past two years that I've really been addressing and getting help for my mental health issues. Um, trickle by trickle, you know, progress with each doctor's appointment. Um, then and that started with getting treatment for my generalized anxiety, which was about, well, it was probably late 2012 or early 2013. And, um, you know, getting that under control was a, you know, opened up my attention span a little bit more and gave me the opportunity to address kind of some of the other problems going on. Um, and so that was when I was first kind of able to notice that there were other types of behavior that were probably problematic because of the effect they were having on my life on a day-to-day -day, uh, day -day basis. Um, you know, obviously there was something um, that was wrong, but it was really hard at first to even tell that I had OCD because I didn't understand what that really actually looked like. The, the popular, you know, depictions of OCD weren't necessarily the reality. And I had a friend that was OCD who had posted an article that I believe was actually from Cracked, of all places, where it was like, no, this is what it's really like to have OCD. And so I read it out of curiosity because I wanted to understand my friend better. 
And I read the article and I was like, oh my God, this is my whole life. Like my, this has been my whole life. And so I went to my doctor and this been part, been part of ongoing discussions with my doctor. Um, you know, we're approaching the problem mostly from a behavioral angle rather than the medicated one, um, for personal reasons. Um, I'm still on medication for my anxiety, which helps, um, some of the OCD symptoms and then the other ones, you know, I try to manage from that cognitive behavioral therapy kind of approach, um, instead. So trying a combination of both things to, to make it a little bit more manageable. So OCD manifests itself in a lot of different ways, and some may be more familiar than others. For example, I have a friend who is constantly plucking at her hair, or I'm right now reading the graphic novel Fun Home by Alison Bechdel, where she describes growing up uh, avoiding odd numbers and multiples of 13, or before she crossed the threshold from one room into the other before she went through the door, she would like do this incantation or at the end of the night, she had to undress in the right order or else she had to start all over and do it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you experience OCD? If I may ask. Um, Gosh, all those things sounded really familiar to me. I mean, that's something I talked about a little bit in my article that I had a lot of little quirks like that, that I didn't understand. Not everyone did, you know, And so the preoccupation with numbers, you know, from what I saw on TV and things, I thought it was supposed to go one way, not, you know, internally, I didn't realize the games I was constantly playing or the comfort and familiarity that I felt with certain numbers and not others. And, you know, I just didn't even realize that that was a peculiarity that that went far deeper than just me trying to play games. I mean, the sense of comfort, like if I, like if I went into my kitchen right now, see this, this plays into um, food photography and presentation and styling and my cooking and all of these things. So I went into my kitchen right now and one of my sets of forks was incomplete and there were only three instead of four. That would be so upsetting to me that I'd probably go on Amazon right now and order a new one. And I would feel a sense of relief at getting all four back again. And not just like in this minor way, but more like, I mean, I, I've, I've, broken things before that belonged to a set and dropped everything, you know, no matter what I was in the middle of. That was just one of those little things where it's just like, okay, well, maybe that's not just this funny little thing that you do. And um, I think those things, while they bring me, you know, these minor amounts of comfort and sometimes are a little bit annoying, it probably doesn't really even pale in comparison to you know, the torture that I put myself through when it comes to obsessing over my relationships, um, obsessing over social things, um, letting, you know, the anxiety will hit me and the self doubt. And it just creates this really toxic poisonous avalanche of thoughts that take me to a dark place. And, you know, when you add the compulsive side of things, that can create really destructive streaks of behavior. I would say, yeah, I have a lot of little obsessions that maybe in the end don't really hurt anything. But when it comes to the social stuff, I think um, that's the part where I'm having to do the most work with, with behavioral therapy. So, so that's what my OCD is like. (laughs) Wow. I'm really glad that you identified the anxiety. I, this may be a terrible metaphor, but it almost reminds me of defeating the first robot master in Mega Man, where you just get that first weapon and then everything else falls because it sets off this chain reaction. Being able to address your anxiety allowed you to address your OCD, which allows you to be happier in so many other ways. Right. And it's, you know, that's, that's where, you know, I recognize that you know, the O part of OCD, the obsessive part of OCD, when, um, you know, getting into these cyclical trains of thought that would, you know, end up torturing me, that's when I realized, you know, this is affecting my quality of life. So obviously, this needs to be addressed. And part of that is looking at every single little scenario that's causing the anxiety, it's causing the self doubt, and, you know, thinking them through to their rational conclusion thinking about every possible end result and assuring myself that it's going to be okay. And that's really, really hard, but that's, you know, that's my bigger struggle with OCD. 
you wrote in your Polygon article about how your OCD can motivate you to play video games in a certain way, which other people might do as well, but for very different reasons. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we were talking about, you know, kind of what's the difference between being a completionist and having OCD. And my Polygon article, I've been talking about how, you know, the push for appeasement of completionists is something that kind of is, is at odds with the realities of, of people who are neuroatypical. You know, I don't, I'm not an authority on, on this topic. I, I recognize OCD is going to be different for every person that has it. You know, only a personal individual can say, can possibly determine, you know, if their completionism is more of a, an issue of obsession rather than just a fun hobby. And I think if it's getting to the point where um, it's something that you're doing, even if it feels like torture, even if you hate it, but you feel like you have to, you know, whether you're a completionist or you might possibly have OCD or you do have OCD, that's something to stop and be like, the design of this game is making me feel compelled to push through even when I really don't want to be here anymore. So... For some, you know, I think it becomes very easy. Just okay, I'm just not going to do it because I just don't have the interest. But for someone like me, it's like, you know, no, I have to. And so I've noticed, even in like the past year, I've been on this little quest to complete a lot of my games to 100. percent And I, a lot of times, I don't really even necessarily have the interest in the game anymore. But I need to see that 100, percent and I need to see that I have all the achievements and. You know, it, when it's not fun, but you're still doing it, that's at least at least a moment to take a pause, at the very least. It would seem to me that video games in the past decade have evolved in a way to make it particularly unfun for you, especially, as you mentioned, with achievements and gamer score. It, it, there's so much to artificially inflate the longevity of a game that a game that could take you four to six hours suddenly takes you 20 to 30 Right, and I and I get some of it. I mean, it, that originally the intent behind that was to give you something more to do in this virtual world where you obviously you weren't ready to leave yet. And I don't think that's also always been an, a bad thing for them to do that. The problem came in where it it was just like here's a thing to do just to do it. Here's an arbitrary list of things to fetch just to do it. You know, get the one hundred out of the one hundred things, whatever they are. There's going to be something like that, you know. And it started out as a fun thing, and now it's a game-padding thing. And I appreciate those who do it because they want, you know, people to feel like they've gotten the entire value out of their $60 game. But um, the problem does arise when it, you know, becomes busy work. And most folks, if they don't want to participate in the busy work, they're just not going to do it. Folks like me, I'm like... No, but I have to, though. You don't understand. Like, I'm going to end up doing this even if my back hurts and I'm freaking miserable the entire time. That's how I ended up feeling with Far Cry 4. That that one had that impact on me quite a bit. And, you know, I don't like knowing in the back of my head there's still things nagging me like, oh, gosh, I got to get back to Saints Row 4 and finish all that up. Um, It's just like, wow, like how long have I been, how many games am I holding on to? How long am I going to hold on to them? It's, it's this uh, self-imposed pressure that some people can opt out of and some people can't. And I think that's the big difference. We can encourage game developers to include joystick mapping for those who are differently abled or to include different color schemes for those who might be colorblind. How can game developers take OCD into consideration when designing and developing their products? You know, it's, it's a little hard to answer that question in that, um, it requires uh, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of looking at the games that trigger that behavior for me and which ones don't. I have been able to pick up on a couple of things. For instance, I noticed that Dying Light, even though there are aspects of completionism within the game, it doesn't have the same effect on me as Far Cry 4 did. Um, I think that's largely because um, some of the numbers aspect is absent. Um I am far from the only person with OCD to have an obsession over the numbers and the sense of completion. Um, I think that sense of completion comes from uh, OCD. People have a really hard time with uncertainty. We like things that feel final. We like finality. That's why we like sets because they feel complete, you know? So in game design, if you, you know, you put a list out there, we're going to want to fulfill it. But in dying light, there were, you know, 
for instance, you could collect all these statues, or obviously there's tons of weapons schematics. The fact that they weren't numbered, I think, is the key behind why I didn't feel that same obsessive kind of, it wasn't like, oh, here's all these items that you could have. It was just, I knew they were all out there, but that same urging, pressing sense of need, like I had to get all of them and create that sense of completion. It was just absent. Um, so while I don't know everything a publisher or developer could do to improve that situation, I think part of the key in unlocking that answer is going to have to do with the number aspect, the list aspect. As we started this conversation, every person experiences OCD differently. Are, do you think these are recommendations unique to you? Um, yeah, again, that's, that's part of the thing, too. I'm not an authority on this. I don't, I don't know how everybody else feels. But I do know that a lot of people have come to me and said, you know, this numbers thing, this is very familiar to me. When I say to other people, the OCD, you know, I think this sense of completion, the, the disease with the lack of finality plays into how we feel about that. There's a lot of agreement there. So I, I don't know if it would help everybody and probably some people have better answers than I do, but it seems clear from the feedback and of the common um, core of these symptoms. I, I think that would end up helping more than just me if that were a reality. But gosh, I just really hope there'd be some researchers and scientists and psychologists who are way smarter than me about these things, maybe talking to developers and um, pinpointing those trigger points. And it, it requires like a lot of insight and self-reflection that I think few human beings are capable of. And it, those are the sort of things that take time. So it's something I think about a lot because I definitely want to write about it more. And I would hope that the right developer would come across it and read it and learn something from it and take that away. But yeah, just to just stress again, you know, obviously my experiences uh, aren't universal. Right. And even though you may not be an expert on the subject, it's still very important to hear an individual's experience because that humanizes this condition that other people may not be familiar with. And maybe somebody out there will hear this and say, hey, that sounds like me. I didn't know that there was a name for that. Yeah, universally, I, I got so much of that when I first um, originally released my Polygon article, article about what it was like being a gamer with OCD, and that felt really good. And some people said, all right, it's time to go see my doctor. And some people were like, you know, I don't think I'm OCD, but, you know, I do feel like I need to address my completionism because it's not providing anything positive to my life. I Sometimes I loathe it, and it feels like a chore, and I just need to let go. So I felt like... Um, you know, people know their bodies and know their internal selves better than we give them credit for. And so I feel like people will even listen to this conversation we're having and kind of make some internal decisions that are going to be on this wide spectrum of things. And so while I do approach this all with just enormous amount of caution because I don't want to talk over anybody or dominate this conversation when the experience is going to be so different from person to person. At the same time, again, there's those core critical things that um, are um, – how do I want to say just um, categoric of the disease that we, you know, common ground that we can all kind of agree on. And um, obviously, num like I said, those numbers and the lists and the sense of completion and that sort of thing are, are uh, very common indeed. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing your experience. I know that this has not been an easy path you've traveled, but having the courage to share it with other people will make their paths a little bit easier, I hope. That is my hope, too. I, it's scary to be open and talk about these things, and this conversation has taken a very serious turn. And I, I feel very awkward because it's, um, you know, I, I'm more hesitant talking about the stuff than I used to be in the, in the past because the past year has been, you know, really hard. It, has, it hasn't been easy for people to, to be vulnerable like this and... Um, I have not been immune to that at all, but, um, you know, if there's someone out there that's listening to this that wants to talk to somebody about it, then, you know, I'm always here. You know where to find me on Twitter. <laughs> and your Twitter handle is? Winners Use Drugs. Yay! <laughs> Yay! I don't mean that, by the way. I, d I always feel the need to iterate that I don't do drugs, though. <laughs> so why the handle, then? Uh, because, because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally the only reason well that and i got a lot better playing fallout when i finally started using those chems well there's that yeah so between the two i, I feel like it's a pretty good username <laughs> well good i'm glad we're not ending on a high note because this i'm glad we're not ending on a dark note because this 
conversation has been wonderful. I love learning more about online gaming journalism, and I can't wait to check out your cookbook. I'm sorry I haven't bought it yet, but it's certainly on my list now. Yay, I'll have at least one sale on Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm always hesitant to buy a cookbook because unless it is specifically vegetarian, because the odds are I'll be able to use only the minority of the recipes. But now you come and tell me I can use 18 out of 25, I'm sold. I know. Thank you. I, You know, when I started doing the marketing for the book, because I've been doing all the marketing myself, I was like, yep, I should be upfront about those vegetarian recipes. And, oh, gosh, it's really good to hear the feedback that, you know, that it's appreciated that I paid attention to that. So, you know, if you need any specific pointers on how to adapt a recipe, I can totally collaborate with you. You just have to drop me an email. <laughs> or tweet at you. Yeah, that's the thing is with the price of every book comes free cooking support through social media from Holly Green for the rest of your life. <laughs> wow, you might want to reconsider what you're getting yourself into. I know, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Holly. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Oh, it's been so great to be here. Thank you for having me on. This has been Polly Gamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. 